0: Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity.
1: And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. Jim is fired up and ready to go, but if he seems a little distracted, the Jets are unveiling new uniforms on Thursday, so he's cautiously dreading what they're actually going to come up with i'm a traditionalist greg so
0: there's no way the new one can make me happy
1: (laughs) well they went back to the old ones the ones that got you a super bowl title back in uh, 1969 and it did get you back to three different afc championship games a lot to live up to for the new uniforms whatever the design is
0: yeah by the the other interesting thing is you realize that there's this really weird tradition across all kinds of different sports Uh, I know in baseball, they've gotten to the point where they kind of adjust them every year a little bit. But uh, almost every time a team makes a significant uniform change, they end up having a good year. There you go. So In that case, like the Jets should be changing their uniform every single year (laughs) and uh, looking like the Oregon Ducks unveiling a new uniform for every game.
1: All right, let's dive into our good martini now, Jim. And uh, this might seem like an odd martini, but the Republicans are punting on health care. President Trump, who announced, or the Justice Department announced, it was joining the fight to have the Affordable Health Care Act uh, struck down uh, due to the fact that there's no longer a penalty for failing to comply with the individual mandate. Uh, Trump then said the Republican Party is the the party of great health care. And then Mitch McConnell said... um, Well, you better come up with a plan then because we're not dealing with that right now. And so Trump has acquiesced. And here's his uh, mini Twitter storm from Monday. Everybody agrees that Obamacare doesn't work. Premiums and deductibles are far too high. Really bad health care. Even the Dems want to replace it, but with Medicare for All, which would cause 180 million Americans to lose their beloved private health insurance. The Republicans are developing a really great health care plan with far lower premiums, cost, and deductibles than Obamacare. In other words, it'll be far less expensive and much more usable than Obamacare. Vote will be taken right after the election when Republicans hold the Senate and win back the House. It will be truly great health care that will work for America. Also, Republicans will always support pre-existing conditions. The Republican Party will be known as the party of great health care. Meantime, the USA is doing better than ever and is respected again. So apparently, just like Nancy Pelosi, he thinks pre-existing conditions are a good thing. Uh, Providing coverage for pre-existing conditions is probably what he means there. Jim, frustrating that after five going on six election cycles, the Republicans still don't really have a plan to deal with this. But the bottom line here is, is that a specific plan would, would get eaten alive heading into the 2020 election, which uh, could not only hurt Trump's reelection chances, but could endanger Republican control of the U.S. Senate here. So while it's frustrating that uh, a fix and a replacement have not happened, waiting till hopefully Republicans have control of uh, more than they have right now is not necessarily the worst
0: idea. Look, this is a, a you know, s- silver lining to a dark cloud type good martini here. Look, conservatives have broad principles on health care reform and the idea of how you should be getting health insurance and how you should be paying for health insurance. But if we really look at it, these are generally not popular. Um, and it's not a matter of ultimately what people want is to have the very best health care and all of the options and to keep their doctor and to choose a new doctor if they want. They want as many choices as possible. Um, they want to have their employer pay for it. Um, if they don't have an employer, they want the government to pay, they want somebody else to pay for it and unlimited options and the very best care. And that doesn't really work that way. Um, now, a lot of my colleagues have pointed out the, a great deal of uh, uh, bright, insightful analysis, pointing out that you know, health insurance and healthcare is one of those circumstances where you're very rare, you know, as, much as, you, as much as Americans complain about out of pocket costs for the copay, for the deductibles, uh, for services that are not covered, that sort of thing. Um, that ultimately, it's very rarely a circumstance in which you're shopping around, right? It's not like you can go on to Expedia uh, and say, hey, you know what? I need an emergency room visit. Which one's going to give me the best cost? You know, because emergency, the nature of emergencies, you rarely have the opportunity to shop around. Even for certain uh, uh, treatments that aren't necessarily immediate emergencies where they got to stitch you up that very second, you generally don't want to take a great deal of time to shop around. And it's, you know, the the complicated process of billing means you very rarely have a big list of this is how much it costs for all these different medical services. Um, So one of the things people pointed out, I think Kevin Williamson has laid this out. it's you can be not, you can be afraid of socialized medicine. You can be afraid of the Democrats' ideas. You can be frustrated with Obamacare. But you can still not necessarily like the system we had had before Obamacare was implemented. Every time you go to the prescriptions and you're not 100% sure how much it's going to be covered by insurance and how much it isn't and how much is your out of pocket and are you up to the deductible for this year, there's a lot of calculations in this. It gives you this uncertainty of how much am I really going to have to pay for this. Um, Unfortunately, I think it's safe to say that if market based reforms are not quite appealing to the American people or to a majority of the American people, well, you got to come up with something. (laughs) And right now, I think it's safe to say Republicans don't have that something um democrats know what their idea is it's to have the government take over more have the government take over larger and larger shares now it's medicare for all medicaid for all some variations of ever expanding government role in what your doctor can do and can't do for obvious reasons that's very unappealing good news is americans know what they don't like about the democratic idea so the democrats keep pitching it with new variations of promises if you like your plan you can keep your plan um in the end the public is not that realistic about what they want Uh, and what they can reasonably expect from the healthcare system. You can't get something for nothing. If you have your employer pay for it, then your employer is going to pick the plans, and the plans may or may not cover the stuff you want. If you have the government pay for it, the government will start saying, well, we're going to reimburse this much for this procedure, and we're not going to reimburse more for that procedure, and it starts interfering with the decisions. It is a complicated issue. As the president famously said, who could have possibly foreseen that healthcare would be so complicated? But that is where we are, and that's what – Uh, Look, I don't think there's any point in trying to force through an effort at health care reform when you don't control the House and you don't have a plan that would unify your party, much less the American people. That's where we're at almost a decade now after this became law.
1: So other than getting rid of the mandate in the tax bill and uh, a couple other uh, tweaks here and there, it's been a very frustrating process. All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And a little-known senator from Hawaii named Brian Schatz is introducing a constitutional amendment to ban the electoral college. Even MSNBC admits that there's 0% chance of this actually succeeding. And so that's why you've already seen an effort underway among the bluer states to pass laws saying that regardless of which presidential candidate wins in our state, we want to allot our electoral votes for the person who wins the national popular vote. Now, there's been about a dozen states that have done that, but they do not hold enough electoral votes to constitute a majority. But other states are uh, considering this, including Ohio, which is kind of disturbing. There has been an ongoing push to abolish the Electoral College. Uh, We saw it after George W. Bush beat Al Gore, and we saw it again after Uh, Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton since she won the popular vote. I remember Eric Holder going on Bill Maher's show the same week and saying it's time to abolish the Electoral College. And more and more people have gotten onto this bandwagon, one of which is Beta O'Rourke, the former Texas congressman who is now running for president after losing his Senate race to Ted Cruz last year. He was at something called the We the People Membership Summit in Washington. It's sponsored by Planned Parenthood, Sierra Club and the Center for Popular Democracy Action. And uh, so a bunch of lefties. And yeah, you bet Beto O'Rourke is against the Electoral College. In fact, he says it was put together by the same people who allowed
2: slavery. So it's got to be bad, right? To answer your question, yes, let's abolish the Electoral College. Um, The night after the presidential election in 2016, Amy and I were were talking to each other and we were like, how are we going to explain to Ulysses and Molly, and Henry, who are now 12, 10, and eight, that the person who got three million more votes just lost the election. Right. And then we were talking to each other and we're like, how do we explain that to ourselves? Like, what, why is this okay? Um, this is one of those bad compromises we made at day one in this country. And there are many others that we can think of and they are all connected, including the value of some people based on the color of their skin There is a legacy and a series of consequences that have persisted and remain with us to this day. And this conversation about how we repair the damage, how we make things right, and how we keep from committing the same injustices going forward is squarely connected to the reason that we are all convened here today, and that is fixing our democracy. So yes, if we got rid of the electoral college, we get a little bit closer to one person, one vote in the United States of America...
1: There was one really bad compromise that the founders did, and that's the three-fifths compromise. You can go back into history and understand why they, they did it what they did. But the Electoral College, the, the, the left keeps trying to tie this into racism and slavery, Jim. And what it really goes back to is the supremacy of states. You go back to the founding, and the states were the big thing. They wanted to form a, a national government to take care of things that individual states couldn't do on their own. And now that the government's gotten so huge, people just don't get that anymore.
0: I'll make one minute uh, molecule of credit to uh, the senator from Hawaii and observe that um, I pretty much I pretty much like the Constitution the way it is. Uh, I I pretty much uh, believe, you know, there's not a lot where I look at it and I'd say, oh, I want to completely tear this thing up and and change everything. But if you do want we do have a process for changing these sorts of things we haven't used in a long time. Last time, we basically decided that members of Congress could not vote themselves pay raises, that if you want to vote a pay raise into effect, you can do so but it can't kick in until the next Congress. So if you believe the Electoral College is some sort of grand injustice, well, then, you know, I don't like this whole national popular vote where states decide to award their, you know, uh, their their, uh, electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote or something like that. You want to change the Constitution, go through the amendment process. And so I'll, I'll tip my hat just a little bit to... Uh, those on the left who choose to do it the proper way instead of trying to find some workaround, as we've seen in a whole bunch of our of issues we debate, particularly involving things like the First Amendment and Second Amendment, uh, the attitude of a lot of, of folks on the left is to just, if there's a part of the Constitution that's inconvenient, just ignore it. Um, now, when he says this whole thing of, you know, how do we explain to our children, you know, that the person who get the most votes didn't win? Well, you show them a copy of the Constitution. <laughs> congressman that's this isn't you know it it didn't sneak up on you it's not like this suddenly appeared out of nowhere you see the same argument people say oh why do why is it so unfair that wyoming has so many as two senators and so does california well we had this dispute because people were the big states were going to always get their way and the little states weren't and if you don't think that that's a a reasonable concern go live in some other country that doesn't have that system, right? The whole idea is that this way, no state that has a small population gets bullied or pushed around. Um, In in terms of electoral college, this ensures that a whole bunch of states are going to be important. You can't just do this by running in the cities, although you probably argue that you look at uh, some of these electoral college maps, um, that the Democrats have effectively, effectively become the, the the candidates of cities. And some years it works out well for them in 2008, 2012, And some years it doesn't work out well for them, like 2000 and 2016, 2004 in there as well. Um, I I went back and checked. It's really interesting. You go a little bit further back, you throw in 1996, you see Bill Clinton winning states the Democrats think they have no chances of winning these days Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas. um, There are a whole bunch of states that are swing states. And there are a whole, even the states are like, oh, you know, Republicans will never win the state like New Jersey. You know, those of us can remember Chris Christie won two terms there. It wasn't that long ago in New York that they had uh, two terms of actually three terms, I believe, of George Pataki. Schwarzenegger won in California. Um, Republicans have come close in Oregon. It's generally a matter of you know, who do you nominate and can they appeal to a particular kind of uh, voter in a particular kind of states. And the whole point of this is that you have to get that 270. You can't just be strong in one corner of the country or two different types or something. You've got to win a whole bunch of states. Now, California is going to be worth a whole lot more. But again, this is not, you know, this didn't just come out of nowhere. This And, and bitter works is like, oh, you know, it's how do we possibly, well, look, this has always been the rule. Don't act like it just suddenly snuck up on you. So anyway, um, deeply frustrating. If, if you want to make that argument, fine. But I also point out, like, once you get to a national popular vote, it's going to turn into how high can you drive up uh, the vote in your base and not not care about uh, whole parts the whole parts of the country. Theoretically, if you were the candidate of coastal cities, uh, you could win the, the, the presidency based on uh, a national popular vote. And that worries me a lot more than the mild frustrations of, ah, oh, you know, the, the, the Electoral College is a little frustrating for us this time. Democrats are acting like you know, the Electoral College is this massive difficulty to them. When they won like a bazillion, uh, uh, the Electoral College was extraordinarily lopsided in 2008. Guys, you can handle this, right? Don't rewrite the whole Constitution because you found 2016 so frustrating.
1: No, that's exactly right. And uh, don't forget, it was 2016. Remember, before Election Day, a lot of folks were talking about how Trump might win the popular vote. But don't worry, Hillary Clinton's got this blue wall uh, in the Rust Belt and beyond that uh, even if Trump does win the popular vote, she's got the Electoral College, so it's all fine. It's only when the uh, circumstances were reversed and the Electoral College is what Actually matters that the, the Democrats started to to get upset about this, as Britt Hume once said on Twitter, uh, talking about the popular vote is like saying that the team who got the most yards uh, in a football game <laughs> ought to win as opposed to those who scored the most points so and I put on Twitter yesterday it got zero response, so maybe this is a stupid point, but be careful about how you want to change the system to address certain current circumstances, because the thing I put out was a Fox News story from 2005 after a really good convention speech, not that much earlier, from Arnold Schwarzenegger, where he had folks like Orrin Hatch and Dana Rohrbacher trying to amend the Constitution to allow a foreign-born person to become president of the United States because they loved Arnold Schwarzenegger so much. Uh, there's not a lot of conservatives that love Arnold Schwarzenegger anymore, so you know you might want to just embrace the, the system as it currently
0: stands. Now I feel guilty for not retweeting that, Greg, <laughs> but yes, that was a very good point. You know, you know, that old saying in a New York minute, anything can change. In politics, things change. So, you know, the rules that are in effect that seem you, that seem really difficult to you now, you know, you might have the wind at your back next cycle. So, you know, don't, don't scrap everything. Don't turn everything upside down. Just recognize what the rules are. You know, it's kind of, kind of fair to wonder if Hillary Clinton had run in Wisconsin. I mean, you know, it's the common joke, but it is really strange for a presidential candidate to make no visits, in a swing state for the entirety of the fall. If you read that book, Shattered, you see the notes from the the, the Hillary's Florida people knew they were in trouble. Uh, The polling in Ohio looked bad pretty much throughout the summer and fall. Iowa looked surprisingly bad for Democrats throughout the summer and fall. So a whole bunch of these states, like there were warning lights (laughs) to the Hillary Clinton campaign, and nobody actually bothered to, you know, look too close at this. There was kind of this attitude, ah, it's Trump. Oh, there's no way he could win all these separate states. Ah, you know, we might, one or two might slip through, but we'll be okay. Well, it turned out they didn't. And, you know, the the rest is history. We will see if this is some sort of, you know, like lingering change in the electorate, or maybe it was just a very unique set of circumstances. Maybe Hillary Clinton was just a really lousy candidate. The Democrats nominate somebody, you know, a year from now who's not Hillary Clinton, And they're in much better shape or maybe not. But, you know, the point is, is that you change the candidate, you change the campaign, you change the message. You don't overhaul the entire process of how you elect the president because you didn't like the result.
1: All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And, Jim, apparently there's only so much room for guys in their upper 70s running for the Democratic presidential nomination. But the fact that Joe Biden's having trouble might mean somebody who said they're getting out. Could be getting back in. Axios with an alleged scoop from Mike Allen. Michael Bloomberg might still run for president in 2020, especially if former Vice President Joe Biden winds up not getting in, according to people who have discussed the matter with the former New York mayor. People tell Allen that Bloomberg, 77, who announced March 5th that he wouldn't run, might reconsider if a centrist lane were to open up. The most likely scenario for that would be if Biden, 76, whose displays of public affection have burst into a major issue, uh, were to become an issue where he either doesn't get in or flames out quite quickly. Bloomberg believes that uh, they would be fighting a bloody fight for the same slice of voters, and that's why he didn't think that he and Biden could both be in the race. He assumed Biden was running. And, of course, they remind us that Bloomberg is worth $58 billion. So if he were to get in, uh, he can certainly make a big splash in this race. So, Jim, what do you make of uh, the rationale where someone in this world is saying, well, if Joe Biden's not running, maybe I have a chance?
0: Well, I'm going I'm to do some kind of uncharacteristic, Greg, and say, you know, there was a certain logic to Mike Bloomberg's assessment uh that you know mike bloomberg was you know seen as pro wall street i think we could probably argue he, he was pretty pro regulation so though, you know being pro wall street is not necessarily <laughs> pro free market um but look you know in the current populist mood of, of the populist grassroots etc that yeah the Blue, there was a bunch about bloomberg all the soda bans in the world um were not going to change the fact that he was an older white male who was a billionaire and uh uh, as, as much as I think the idea of you know Bloomberg versus Trump 2020, pick your Manhattan billionaire America. Um, kind of you know as much fun as that would be. I think a lot of Democrats would be frustrated and stay home. But Michael Bloomberg you're looking to say, hey you know what I ran the biggest city in America. Uh, maybe the greatest city in the world for three terms. the earth did not crash into the sun, took over right after 911. Uh, yes, I banned dancing like it was Footloose, but, uh, you know, I, I deserve to I, I deserve have my, my place on stage, too. You know, centrists of the Democratic Party need a voice, and I should be their voice. Oh, by the way, I have $58 billion, and I can bury any one of you punks in negative ads. So if you're really ho- rooting for chaos on the Democratic side, if you're rooting for Thunderdome, two, two men enter, one man leaves, or however they choose to identify um uh, then this is this is the scenario that looks pretty tempting. They, you know, Yeah, Biden would bring out the old Obama crowd, it'd be kind of interesting. Uh the Axios newsletter says this morning that the Biden folks think the Bernie folks are fanning the flames of the oh Biden touched me here uh and I felt uncomfortable stories. Uh and that the Biden the Biden team wants to destroy the Bernie team. Well, first of all, a lot of bees in this primary. Huh? <laughs> we got Beto, Budet Edge, um, Bernie Biden and Beto. How ironic it would be after, after all this talk about the year of the women, about all this year about the, the the rising diversity, that in the end, Greg, it came down to the four Bs of Biden, Bernie, Buttigieg, <laughs> and Beto. Um, but you know, in this, case, so first of all, there's a possible that would be delicious. But as I mentioned, Bloomberg can take on anybody. And, you know, look in the petty cash drawer, take out another couple hundred million to run negative ads against this guy and destroy anyone he wants. I don't feel destroyed, but, you know, he has unlimited financial resources and that's how he won his all of his uh, all of his mayoral races. Um, it's not that Mike Bloomberg is this whirling dervish of raw political charisma. By the way, someone quoted me ba- that back to me at the National Review Ideas Summit. So it's possible <laughs> I use that term a little too frequently. But you know what? If you're starting to sing along, good for you. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, you know, I, I, you know, the, when Bloomberg said he wasn't going to run, you know, I felt I and my large sodas felt good. Um, but there was a part, you know, there was, at one point the idea of, oh, I forgot to mention when we talk about the billionaire versus billionaire fight. Um, the idea of Howard Schultz running as an, in, running as an independent, yes. you, know. you know, America, do you like, you know, Bloomberg, uh, the, the Bloomberg Network and Bloomberg News Channels? Do you like the Trump Organization or do you like Starbucks? Pick your billionaire and your, your corporation, America, um, you know. Bloomberg, if he does jump in, would probably complicate life for a lot of the other Democratic candidates. It'd be a heck of a lot of fun. I also think it'd be interesting. I, I also have this suspicion that Bloomberg might be the kind of candidate that Trump could actually beat, just by pointing out all the different little nanny state sort of things, um, and that Trump, for all of his flaws, positioned himself as the candidate of freedom. And I think you know, uh, you know, the guy who's coming for your guns and your large sodas versus you know the status quo. I know which side. Uh, uh, seems pretty winning to me, but we'll see how it shakes out, Greg. Yeah, this is
1: going to be interesting. I also like the low bar you set there. I can already see the uh, Bloomberg ads of, I was mayor of New York City for three terms, 12 years, and not once did New York City crash into the sun. Give me a chance, America. <laughs> or you know, if you think I'm doing a bad job, look at the guy who followed me. <laughs> In twelve I years, see, I didn't kill a single groundhog. <laughs> yeah, you that. beat me to it in 12 years. Ah, <laughs> 12 years I never killed a groundhog. Oh, man. So we'll see. Jim, another fun day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.